in Luke 24, really the heart of the passage. Verse 5, it says, They were frightened, bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? We know these men are angels. Verse 23, that we will look at next week, clearly makes that the case. The men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. And when we think about the resurrection today, when you think about the fact that He has risen, we have to think about it in these terms. The resurrection is God's promise of a new world given in advance of this present old order and old world. It is God's promise of a new world given in advance. That's what the resurrection is. George Cutting was a British evangelist and one day he was riding his bicycle through an English village and he was praying over this village because he planned to come back and evangelize the village. And he felt compelled to cry out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. No sooner as he said this, the, he felt compelled to say it again. And so he cried, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Six months later, he went back to that village to evangelize it. And he came to this cottage and this elderly lady came to the door. And he asked her, he said, ma'am, have you been saved? And she teared up and she said, yes. Let me tell you my story. Six months ago, I was crying out to God. And I was in turmoil over the state of my soul. And where I would spend eternity in light of my sin. And then I heard the words, behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I asked God to repeat those words and He did. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins in the world, of the world. And I was converted that day six months ago. Such is the power of the gospel. A very similar story is told of Charles Haddon Spurgeon who preached at London's Crystal Palace uh, on invitation... Uh, supposedly, this particular service was one of the largest in the history of the church. The gathering of people there. And a few days before he went to that uh, palace to preach, he, he uh, went in there just to, just to pray over the pews. And, and he walked across the, the podium. And, and he decided to test the acoustics. And he, he cried, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And there was a man, a worker, working up in the second floor of that building. He heard those words and was convicted of his sins. And those words gave him hope that there was a Savior, a Lamb, who had taken away his sins, and he was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the Lamb of God is the prerequisite and the power to take away our sins. But the resurrection is also the proof. 
that God has received the payment for our sins. Indeed, the resurrection is the beginning of a new order of things. It is the first day of history's last day. A day that will be consummated when he returns. A new heaven and a new earth. It is God's promise of a new world given in advance this old world that we are currently living in. After God created all things good, and that's what Genesis emphasized in Genesis 1, we know that Genesis records a cosmic tragedy due to Adam and Eve's first sin. Sin disrupted the world. There's alienation, alienation with God, alienation with each other, alienation with ourselves, alienation from the created order itself. The whole creation was subjected to bondage. Romans 8 tells us that. However, even in that judgment, God graciously and mercifully promises to reverse the curse even implying, I believe, the resurrection in that first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15, where the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. But I believe there's an implication there of a future resurrection because that seed of the woman will suffer significantly. His heel will be bruised. But through that suffering, he will emerge victoriously and he will crush the head of the serpent. And the promise of that seed is played out. It's unfolded throughout the book of Genesis. And in that regard, the beginning and the end of Luke is similarly, I mean, it's remarkably similar to the beginning and the end of Genesis. Think about this. Genesis begins with worshipers in the sanctuary. Adam and Eve are the first worshipers. The Garden of Eden is the first sanctuary. The Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies. It's the kingdom of God. It's where God dwells with His people. God's people in God's place under God's rule. It's the first sanctuary. Genesis begins in a sanctuary. It ends in a coffin. It ends with death, Joseph's death. But it ends in a way that signals that death is not the final word. Joseph instructs his brothers to take his bones back to Canaan. And Hebrews tells us that was a sermon in itself. Hebrews 11 tells us, By faith, Joseph at the end of his life made mention of the exodus and gave directions concerning his bones. Yes, Genesis begins with creation. It ends with a coffin, but it signals this is not the final word. Luke begins in the sanctuary as well. God's people in the temple worshiping the living God. Zechariah, Simeon, Anna, the Lord Jesus himself in Luke 1 and 2, worshiping. In the sanctuary. But here's the difference. Whereas Genesis ends with a coffin. Luke ends. With an empty tomb. The resurrection of the son of God. Is the first event. Of the exodus. Back to the sanctuary. Okay. 
That's why the resurrection is so crucial and important for our salvation. And in this final chapter, Luke chapter 24, Luke gives us three accounts centered on the resurrection. Here you have in verses 1 to 12, the focus is on the women who were the first to the empty tomb. And then in verses 13 to 35, you have the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears to them. And then in verses 36 to 49, Jesus appears to his 11 in that upper room. In fact, you could break Luke 24 down in this way. The verses 1 to 12, the focus is on the empty tomb. In verses 13 to 35... We have a road. The narrative takes place in a, on a road. In verses 36 to 49, the, the narrative takes place in a room. And then in verses 50 to close this gospel, you have the disciples with Jesus on a mountain where Jesus will ascend to the right hand of the Father where he rules today. Now keep in mind... At this point in the narrative, Jesus has been crucified. But numerous times, he has told his disciples, I'm going to be put to death, but I am going to be raised on the third day. It has not registered with his disciples. Not a single one. Not one disciple has this prophecy registered with no one is believing, no one is expecting a resurrection. And the last time we were together, we saw these women provoked, I believe, by the gospel boldness, kingdom boldness of Joseph of Arimathea. They come to the tomb and they begin to anoint the corpse, anoint the body with spices as a, an act of devotion. But it's the day of preparation. And the day of preparation is about to end and usher in the Sabbath. You can't work on the Sabbath. Remember, Jesus died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The day of preparation began at night on Thursday evening. It would end uh, at night on Friday evening when the sun went down. And so they didn't have very much time to do what they needed to do. So they could not complete their task. And in the providence of God, they come back on Sunday morning to finish what they had started on the day of preparation. And that's where we pick up in Luke 24. And the first thing we will see here is their alarm due to the empty tomb. Notice with me in verse 1. But on the first day of the week, this is Sunday. In fact, we see in Acts chapter 20, this is when the Christian church begins to worship. They no longer worship on the the uh, Jewish Sabbath, which is Saturday, they begin to worship on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, which signals there's a new age that has been uh, ushered in by the resurrection. We are the people of that new age. And so on the first day of the week, at early dawn, now John 20 verse 1 tells us, not only was it early dawn, it was still dark. Uh, so the, the women here are anticipating this. And... Um, they went into the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they, when they went in, they, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. All 
four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us that it was women who first discovered the tomb was empty and that the resurrection, the resurrected Lord Jesus himself first appeared to women. Now, why is this important? First of all, in that world, women were not uh, ascribed with dignity. They were not given the worth uh, that was their due by virtue of the fact that they're the image of God. It's not what the Bible teaches. It was what sinful man perceived. And so the fact that these women were the first to discover the tomb was empty um, is, is ironic to say the least. But there's a second reason it was ironic. In that world, a woman's testimony had no credence. That's important to this text. They were not considered reliable witnesses in the first century. For example, Josephus, the uh, very famous Jewish historian, he believes or he claims to represent the law of Moses, which includes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He claims to represent the law of Moses when he writes these words, Put no trust in a single witness, but let there be three or at the least two whose evidence shall be accredited by their past lives. From women, let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and the temerity of their sex. Now, there is reference in Deuteronomy 17 and 19 to the importance of two or three witnesses, but it says nothing about women. This had become first century tradition. Okay? So women had no voice. They could not even testify in court. Another example, this is Celsus, who was a second century skeptic of Christianity. He spoke harshly against Christianity. And one of his main arguments went like this. Christianity can't be true because the, wit- the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. I didn't say that. I would never believe that. Except maybe when they're teenagers. But that's a... um. And here's the thing. Many of Celsus's um, proponents agreed with that. This was an insurmountable argument. The fact that the, the first witnesses were women discounts the notion of an empty tomb. And do you see the implications here? Crucial implications. Luke and the other gospel writers all include the women here at the empty tomb as the first witnesses. If they were making these stories up, to spearhead their movement, the last thing they would have done would be to write in women as the first witnesses. So why did they include these women as the first witnesses? Because that's what happened. That's what happened. It is the historical reality of things. Now, as these women are making their way, Mark informs us in his account that they're discussing how is that stone going to be rolled away. There are many today, archaeologists and historians, who believe that those stones, it would have taken some 20 men to move the stone. 
That's how big an issue it was. Of course, Matthew's account tells us that it was a violent earthquake that moved that stone. And when they get there, the tomb, the stone, the, the, the grave uh, was empty. And then we have in verses 4 to 7 the explanation of this empty tomb. Look with me in verse 4. So they get there. They did not find the body. Verse 4, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men... We know to be angels, verse 23, stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Some of the most hopeful words ever written right there. He is not here, but has risen. Now, our familiarity with this narrative... And the fact that we know that Jesus was raised, and we have known that virtually our entire lives, has dulled us to how shocked these women would have been. They came early. As we said, uh, John 20 tells us that, the, that it was still dark. Why do you think they got there so early? They couldn't sleep. These women are filled with anxiety and, and, and fear, and, and their, their hope is dead. They thought Jesus was their redeemer and, and he's dead. Not only that, they, they were sad. They, there, was, there was depression, there was anxiety, there was mourning, there was hopelessness. There was everything you experience when something catastrophic has happened in your life. You can't sleep. These women could not sleep and they discover on top of that that the body is gone. This would have added to their sorrow. Think about it. The greatest man they've ever known. Jesus Christ is love incarnate. They have known this man for three years. We've had people here leave our church. They moved somewhere else and we grieved the loss. It was a void when they left the church. But on top of that, Jesus was the perfect son of God who loved perfectly. And uh, not only did he leave, he's dead in their perception. And so there is great loss Uh, The man that had loved them better than anybody else in the history of the world was gone. And not only that, he had died a humiliating death. The crucifixion was humiliation. Now on top of that, they can't even find his body. But in their grief, God graciously sends these angels to them and gives those words that are so uh, crucial to our faith. He's not here He is risen from the grave. You know, our familiarity here makes it really hard to enter into their grief. Uh, But this week, uh, I read of of a story that I think kind of helps us capture what should be here. Um, In 2004, a couple uh, in Indonesia lost their four-year-old daughter and seven-year-old son to the tsunami that hit on December the 26th. The day after Christmas. For those of us who are parents especially. We, we feel that. When we read those words. That this little boy and this little girl. Were swept away. In the tsunami. But unbeknownst to this couple. A fisherman. Found this little girl. Did not know how to. Uh, reunite this little girl. With her parents. And so for 10 years. This fisherman has been raising this little girl. And on this past Thursday, the couple 
discovered that their little girl was alive. When they reunite, the mother said she could not stop crying. So sweet, the reunion. And that, I think, is a picture of what these women would have felt when they hear those words, he's not dead. He's risen. Why are you searching for the dead among the living? These are crucial, are living among the dead. And we can feel the pathos of that story of the Indonesian couple. But that's the pathos we should feel if our hearts are right when we read this text, if our affections are correct when we read this text, if we read this text listlessly and bored and indifferent, God, help us. Ask God the Holy Spirit to awaken your dead affections. As beautiful as this story is of an Indonesian couple who receives their 14-year-old daughter, After 10 years of absence, that stirs us all. But if this does not stir you even the more, you're not where you need to be spiritually. And I say that to myself as well. He's not here. He is risen. This should provoke worship. But notice how the angels convince them. It's very remarkable to me. They simply tell the women, notice in the the second part of verse 6, Remember how he told you. What are they doing there? They're appealing to Christ's words. They don't give any kind of evidential uh, proofs here. They just appeal to the word of Christ. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Of course, they are appealing here to the words in Luke 9, 22, when Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in chapter 18, you have him prophesying that again in verse 30. 2 and 33, he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised. They appeal to the word of Christ. And I think this is very real and practical for us. Everything about us naturally thinks that... We could lead someone to faith if we had more proof. If we could just have some kind of tangible evidence, we could lead anyone we know to faith. And here, the angels simply appeal to the word of Christ. We think it's just the the tangible evidence that would bring light to someone, bring conversion to someone. The angels appeal to To the word. Why? Because the word of God is the very authority of God. Secondary evidence does not have the authority of the word of Christ. When the word of Christ comes to bear on a broken situation, resurrection occurs. The the word of God has the same attributes as God himself. He is Lord. 
And so when the word comes to bear, the lordship of Christ comes to bear. His covenantal presence, his power, and his authority comes to bear on the broken situation. And we need to trust the gospel. We need to trust the word of Christ. One of the reasons you don't share your faith enough is you don't believe in the power of the gospel. When the gospel comes, omnipotence comes. The word of Christ, the gospel, is all we need. The angels here are a model for us. They are an example for us. You never know who's right for the gospel. One thing we do know. When Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus comes forth. No matter how dead Lazarus is. And so we are very grateful here for these angels model to us and for us. And notice as well, they speak to the third day. That's very important in Luke. And this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that takes us all the way back to Hosea. Hosea is writing to the northern kingdom and he says, look, judgment's coming to you. The Ninevites are going to come in and destroy you because of your apostasy and your idolatry. And yet, even in the midst of judgment, there will be salvation. And in Hosea 6, verse 2, hear the words of Hosea. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. That is a prophecy that God is going to raise Israel up on the third day. Restore Israel. In the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have a new Israel. Reconstituted around the new and better Davidic king. Jesus Christ, through his resurrection, is restoring what has been lost by sin and apostasy and idolatry. That's why the third day is so crucial. We even saw it in Jonah. Jonah was raised up out of the belly of the well on the third day. Now note the response to this empty tomb. Note with me in verse 8. And they remembered his words. That's the key. They remembered his words. Now, keep in mind, maybe you have wondered, how in the world did the disciples not hear when Jesus said he would be raised on the third day? He said it numerous times. But keep in mind, Jesus often spoke metaphorically. He often spoke figuratively. And so it's likely that the disciples took that to be a metaphorical statement as well. But now they recognize he's serious. We're to take these words literally. And this is an example to us as well. We cannot comprehend life apart from the word of God. It interprets the issues, the circumstances... And the difficulties of life. Think about Iraq. I look and see and I grieved all day as I read those articles yesterday about what's going on uh, in Iraq. Last night we talked about it in our family worship. It led my daughter Ella to tears. It should lead us to tears. We should grieve over the things God grieves over. 
And if I did not have the Word of God to interpret what's happening over there, it would lead me to despair and hopelessness. But you know what the Word of God says? The resurrection is God's amen to the it is finished of the Son. Jesus is ushering in a new world, a new order of things. Which means if you're not on the side of the resurrected Christ, there is coming a day when your head will be crushed underneath his feet. And so if you have a problem with the anger and judgment of God, look to Iraq. If God did not judge sin, then these terrorists would get away with what they're doing. But... What's happening over there is a reminder, it is good that God judges sin. But the Word of God interprets these things for us. Now note as well, their response when they remembered His words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, the one who had seven demons. Did Jesus cast out those demons? Luke 8, verse 2. By the way, no one is demon-possessed in the Scriptures as a victim. When you're demon-possessed, it's because you opened yourself up to the demonic. And the way you open yourself up to the demonic is to to give in to your depravity. This was a woman who had opened herself up to remarkable and heinous sin. And as a result... She had been possessed by seven demons and Jesus had cast the demons out of her. She's a redeemed woman. And here she is with this beautiful and glorious privilege. In fact, John tells us she's the first one to behold the the resurrected Christ. And it says that Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. They're doing the work of an evangelist. There is a pattern in Luke 24. Okay, and the pattern is this. The, the disciples are initially disappointed. They thought he was the Redeemer, but now he's dead in a grave. They, they, so they're initially disappointed and they despair. But then you have a rebuke. In this case, the angels rebuke the women. Next week, we will see Jesus rebuke the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. The next week we will see Jesus rebuke the eleven in the room. So you have this despair and then you have this rebuke and then you have the, the subjects being taught the word. They're taken back to the word. And what they're shown in the word is that the word is not centered on moral platitudes, principles for living. They are taught that the word of God centers... On a crucified Messiah who has been raised from the grave. That's what the Bible is about. And so we see this pattern. And then the response is always to evangelize. When that has captured you, the knee-jerk response is to evangelize. So if I'm not evangelizing, that's a symptom of a deeper problem. I've gotten over the cross. I've gotten over the resurrection. And so you see these women go to the apostles. Verse 11, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. What a joy kill. And they did not believe them. Well, there's a couple of reasons they didn't believe them. First of all, they were women. And praise God, the Bible restores the dignity that is due women. 
But even the disciples had this sinful, low view of women. But there's a second reason they didn't believe them. People aren't raised from the dead. That's the issue. Now, notice as well, Luke records their names. In fact, Mark records their names three times. This, again, signals that we're reading a historical account. It's very likely these women would have still been alive to verify, to validate, even as Luke is writing this. And Mary Magdalene is the first one mentioned. This, is, this to me, is beautiful. Jesus had long ago taken away her shame. No matter what you've done, and I doubt it even compares to what Mary Magdalene had done, to open yourself up to seven demons, no matter what you've done in here. And I would venture to say, if we were to write a list, it would be pretty heinous. If we were just added up right here in, in the room, no matter what you've done, because of the cross, because of the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus will restore. Jesus will remove that shame. And what a privilege this woman had to be the first to not only see the empty tomb, to behold the resurrected Christ, which you see clearly in John chapter 20. But here's the point. They're not expecting a resurrection. The disciples, the, the idea of a resurrection is not on their radar. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, in the Greek world, there was a low view of the body. Because of the influence of a man named Plato, there was a very low view of the body. So salvation was perceived as liberation from the body. Your soul is liberated from the body. And so in the Greek world, the idea of a resurrected body was anathema. But more importantly and more related to these disciples who were Jews, the Jews did believe in a future resurrection where God would restore Israel, where God would restore a broken world. They believed in a future resurrection. That's Ezekiel 37. God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? You know, Lord. They believed in that. We saw that in Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. What they did not perceive is that one man would be resurrected in the middle of history. Let me give you a fancy term. You don't ever have to remember this again. This is called inaugurated eschatology. Boy, that's a fancy term. I realize that. But what is eschatology? It's the study of last things. The, the world to come has been inaugurated into this present broken world through one man, Jesus Christ, the Davidic king. And so the idea that one man would be raised from the grave was not on their radar. And they call this language idle tale. An idle tale. They certainly knew that a resurrection would come. Mary, remember when Jesus went to raise Lazarus? And Martha said, if you had been here earlier, he wouldn't be dead right now. And Jesus said, Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. See, they believed in a resurrection. And what does Jesus tell her? I am the resurrection. 
I am the resurrection. But they did not understand that. And so they believe what these women are saying is an idle tale. Now, let me give you uh, some uh, perspective on that language of idle tale. It was a medical term. Okay? And it was used for those who were sick, highly sick, and were delirious. They're essentially saying these women have lost their mind. And as I was thinking about this, that this week, I was so convicted. Do, am I so proud? Am I so protective of my name that I would not be willing to be considered delirious for the sake of Jesus? How many times have I passed over an opportunity to share the gospel because I did not want those important people to think I was delirious. But Jesus is risen. And if he is risen, so what? What does it matter that people who have no impact on your future eternity, what does it matter what they think? That's where these women were. In spite of the responses of these disciples. And even if they do think you're delirious, sometimes because of the gospel power, things begin to change. Notice how the passage ends, verse 12. But Peter rose. The eleven thing it's idle talk, or the other ten. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Man loved Jesus. And he missed Jesus. He was grieving. And so he hears these words and he rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. This word marveling has been used in Luke. doesn't necessarily mean believing. Uh, there's a place in Luke 11 where the Pharisees marvel. They marvel in unbelief. There's other places where it's a positive term. I think Luke is intentionally leaving us hanging. It's ambiguous. Of course, we know that Peter came to believe. But at this point in the narrative, in the brilliance of Luke's narrative, he just moves on to the next passage. Leaving us hanging as to what Peter really believes at this point. Now, why does he do that? He's leaving us hanging. He's leaving us dangling to ask that question. But to not to ask it of Peter. But to ask it of ourselves. What do we believe about the empty tomb? What do we believe about the resurrected Christ? What do we believe about its implications for our lives? Have you thought about these things this week? Do you live by them? Unfortunately, most people don't give it a second thought. J.B. Phillips, a 20th century scholar who wrote his own translation of the Bible, the, the, the Phillips translation, he said, over the years I have had hundreds of conversations with people, many of them of higher intellectual caliber than my own, who had no idea of what Christianity is really about. This I find pathetic and somewhat horrifying. It means that the most important event in human history is politely 
and quietly bypassed. For it is not as though the evidence has been examined and found unconvincing. It had never simply been examined in the first place. Of course, we know that once the eleven encounter the risen Christ, once they examine this reality, it transforms them from these kind of unbelieving wimps to men who laid down their lives for that message. Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the grave. That's what the book of Acts is about. You know, Paul says that if Jesus has not been raised, you eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you die. I mean, honestly, if Jesus has not... I, I heard about a Methodist church in Auburn when I was living there. And they, they had an article in the paper, the, the pastor. And he said, even if Jesus had not been raised, even if they had found his bones, we would be Christians. And Paul would say, that's nonsense. If Jesus has not been raised, eat, drink, and be merry. You have no hope. Just enjoy it while you have it. But if he has been raised... It changes everything. It is a game changer. It should be a game changer in your life as well. He is risen. Do you believe this? That's the question this text is calling us to answer. There's no application in this text. The only response in this text is to be in awe of the risen Christ. Do you believe he's been raised? That is the question. When it comes to your besetting sin that you don't think you can overcome, Jesus is risen. When it comes to your troubled marriage that you just believe can never improve, Jesus is risen. When it comes to your lost sons and daughters, your lost family members, your lost co-worker, that you just cannot even envision would ever be saved. Jesus is risen. When it comes to your anxieties, those things that you worry about that typically never come to pass, those worries, those fears, those anxieties that just cripple you like a low-grade fever at all times, Jesus is risen. When it comes to that difficult person that you find so hard to love. God has put that person into your life. Maybe that person is in your Sunday school class. Or maybe that person works in your cubicle at work. And God has called you to love that person. Jesus is risen. The one who came to take away the sins of. Of the world is risen. Do you believe that? 